what I'm getting at or what I'm trying to get at is let's take that third leg of the stool, that work capacity piece, and let's try and put a little bit more thought behind it, much in the same way we do with our our aerobic work and our strength work. So instead of just slapping a finisher on the wall and having your athletes redline because the class ends at 60 minutes, we're a little bit more deliberate with it. We have some principles in place. We can teach an athlete what we're getting at and we, we go for sustainability, which as we mentioned a couple of times is I think kind of the key component of this is that it's sustainable. How are you? I'm doing all right, Drew. Good to see you again. It's been a long time. Thanks. I had the worst week of my life. I wanted to wait until we were recording. So I went to a conference this week and I thought to myself, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to only focus on eating salads and stuff. Cause when you're TDY, it's all too easy to just cash in on the per diem and, you know, <laughs> four course meals every night. So I got a salad in Nashville at Whole Foods and pretty sure that gave me food poisoning. So was in bed from essentially Monday night to Wednesday morning and I can now walk around, but when I eat, I get the chills. So I don't know what that's all about. I think the real lesson from this whole experience is that don't eat salad. If you're in Nashville, don't go to Nashville. Like, hot chicken, man. What are you doing getting salad? I've done hot chicken before and it was good, but again, this time I was like, I'm gonna do the, I'm gonna do it healthy, and it bit me in the ass because I got food poisoning. So that's rough. Anyway, this week, uh, hi everyone, welcome to Mops Mo's. This is Drew and Alex. I'm not sick anymore, I don't think, but uh, this week we're gonna talk about. A little bit of a little bit of work capacity. A little bit of work capacity. I would I would categorize this as one of those coaching episodes, one of those how-to episodes. We've got a handful of notes. We've got the blog entry pulled up that we published a while back on a theoretical guide to programming for work capacity. And it's kind of what I use as my foundational, I guess, principles for how to do this. We'll get into what that what that looks like. But um this kind of goes along with the episodes we've put out already with regards to how to train for endurance and how to train for strength. I guess if I wanted to really, really, really simplify things, I would say that this is the, the third, the third leg of that athletic performance stool. I'm sure somebody could come up with some other things, but I think kind of strength, endurance and work capacity are the big three when we think of uh, training for tactical athletes. So that's the genesis of the episode and we're just going to see where we go. Makes sense to me. And Drew made fun of me for this before we hit record, but fun apparently you. a thing I do is define terms. Apparently that's like just part of my role here, I guess, but that is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to define some terms because I think work capacity is one of those terms in the fitness space that gets thrown around without anybody explaining what they mean by it. And everybody kind of has to like get a, away with. Yeah. Everybody kind of has like a vague idea of it in their head. It, it yep. brings up thoughts of like assault bikes and kettlebells, but nothing really much more specific than that. Um, so I think it's important to like kind of break it down a little bit. And before we do that, I think some physics notes are slightly helpful here. Um, physics is actually like pretty prevalent in a lot of exercise science stuff. You're going to get discussions of like torque and levers and work and power and all that kind of stuff. Um, but those terms end up in like the general conversation about fitness with a bunch of people who don't really bother to go back and learn what they mean. So I'm going to talk about a few of them right here. One is important to this conversation because it's work capacity. So what the heck is work? 
work is not some vague concept. Work is a physics term and it is defined as force times distance divided by time, right? Hold on, let me pause you because I literally this week, and I won't throw anybody under the bus, but people listening will, might know. I sit in on a brief talking about quantifying work using wattage, which is appropriate if you're on you know, a rower or a bike or a ski erg, because those devices have formulas to calculate work, which like you just mentioned, force times distance over time. There is not a easy way to capture wattage as a power output metric for other movements like wall balls, like burpees, like snatches, cleans. And I have seen intelligent people try and pitch, you know, force power curves, all these things, capturing wattage. And you kind of have to ask this question of like, okay, if, if you're claiming that work equals force times distance over time, and you're putting that next to a burpee and telling me that you're calculating power output for each rep, are you timing each rep? Yeah. The only way to do that is to know the speed of the movement, right? Exactly. Like that's, and that's not to yeah. say that what you just said is wrong. It's completely appropriate. That is what work is. I just think that it kind of goes back to that original thing we talked about, which is like work capacity, quote unquote, in the fitness sense is a complete wild west gray zone. And it's something that I think a lot of coaches just sort of slap on the paper and say, we're doing work capacity and they don't really have much of a methodology behind it. So I'll get off my soapbox. Now you can go back to defining things. You would hope they do. Cause that's one of the many sections of the CSCS test that everybody learns and then forgets immediately. Cause you do have to answer questions about like, uh, an athlete moves a barbell X number of feet and the barbell weighs this amount. For sure. Yeah, I, those those problems are in there. Again, not something anybody uses in their career once they finish with the CSCS, but right. But if the if the, if the path of the barbell changes due to Correct. fatigue or whatever, work changes. Yep. So again, I get it. it. It's like economics. Like we learn economics through idealized models. That's fine. And then when you expose it to the real world, it falls apart. 100 percent Anyway, um, the, the other two I want to throw out just because <laughs> they're relevant. I think power is in the same category as work where I think in the coaching world, people know what they mean when they say power, but I think a lot of people who are like just discovering fitness think of power in like the same vague sense as they think of work capacity. Like that guy's powerful. Like, well, what does that mean? Right. And I'm going to use a, a scary sciencey word right now, but power is just the derivative of work. So it's the, it's the rate of work. You're, you're doing an extra divided by time. <laughs> all right. Um, so why did we do all that stuff? Cause now we're going to define work capacity. Um, I hopped on the Google machine a little bit before we started recording this episode and grabbed a few different ones of varying merit and relevance to the conversation. And we might end up liking one of them, or we might end up coming up with a different definition. I don't know, but when you search for like work, like what is work capacity and you're looking for like scholarly sources, I discovered literally 30 minutes ago, um, that there is an extensive body of literature on work capacity outside of exercise science. And hmm. it is looking at manual laborers in various different careers and how much literal work capacity they have to do the labor that they're being asked to do. So you have it looking at like guys who work in factories and warehouses, you have it working like agriculture, things like that. There's lots of studies on how age affects work capacity um, but I grabbed one. The first one that came up, not a lot of studies define all their terms super clearly. Um, this study happened to be from, let me see if I can pull it up, the Indian Journal of Occupational Environmental Medicine. And it is looking Indian at the work journal? capacity. 
It is. Um, nice. And you can find a bunch of this stuff. There's a lot of it. But I kind of liked their definition because it plays into some of the stuff we're going to talk about later. But they describe it as, and I'll quote, work capacity is the ability to perform real physical work. Shocking. But then they have a second sentence that helps a little bit. Work capacity can be assessed by aerobic capacity, endurance, energetic efficiency, voluntary activity, and work productivity. All of those are completely different things. And they're all super vague. Extremely vague. And so it like underlines what I was saying from the beginning of like, there's this body of literature. And this article was written by a team of like five, uh, three PhDs and two students, it looks like. Um, like smart people. And they, and they just laid down a definition that is like not helpful. Uh, I didn't have a bunch of time to go th- and dig through the other stuff. I am, I'm optimistic that some of this body research has something that's a little bit more specific <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe this is a space where some like exercise physiologists could team up with these environmental medicine people and help them understand that you have to define terms better than that. If you're going to quantify something. Oh, Cause I thought that was pretty funny. Cause that was like the first result. The next two are going to be sources people are more familiar with, uh, one a little bit more reputable than the other. Um, I'll start with T-Nation. Everybody loves that. It's a good place to start learning if you're in the space. Got to be real careful, though. Um, for the audience, I'll give you my rule for how to navigate T-Nation's website. If you're going to read a <laughs> T-Nation article, open it up, immediately scroll all the way to the bottom. If the last sentence of the article is just a bunch of like smushed in hyperlinks to supplements like plasma and like brain candy and stuff like that. Do not read the article. It's not real. They're just trying to sell you supplements. You know, but if the article the, doesn't the ultimate double edged sword. hundred percent. But there are good articles on Teenage no, believe it or not. Everybody's got to start somewhere, man. I feel like um, that thing's been around forever too. Forever. Christian Thibodeau, baby. <laughs> anyway, their definition. Work capacity is your ability to perform as much work as possible in a prescribed amount of time. Alternatively, it's your ability to perform a prescribed amount of work as quickly as possible. We're getting closer. We're still using the term in the definition, which is a little frustrating. But at least we're now talking about work in like theoretically a more defined, like quantifiable sense, the force times distance divided by time sense. And then Stronger by Science went a slightly different direction with it, which I thought was interesting. And they say, and I forget which one of them wrote the article. I might still have it up. Let's see. Uh, It was written by Greg Knuckles. And he says, work capacity is essentially the total amount of work you can perform, recover from, and adapt positively to. So that's getting a a layer more complicated. Um, the, The reason he framed it that way is he's making the point in the article he wrote, which of course we'll link in the show notes, that you to like continue adapting to stressors you put on your body, you do at a certain point have to just start performing more work. And that was the the general thing on his episode or his article. Sorry, it's one of their blog posts. So it, he went a slightly different direction with work capacity. But I think kind of my point here, and I'm going to throw it to Drew to try and define it his way soon, but Three articles, three pretty different de- definitions. Uh, we we clearly don't have like a working consensus of what work capacity is. Yeah, I think uh, while you were talking, I looked up CrossFit's work capacity definition because I think from a coaching Ooh. standpoint, when coaches think of work capacity, they're 
and athletes, quite frankly, they're they're probably thinking of something crossfitty. Sure. Which are. is to say, like I'll use a nerdy term here, like mixed modal. But what that basically means is just multiple modalities, barbells, assault bikes, running, burpee. I mean it could be anything. But I would I would hazard to guess that if you if you surveyed a bunch of coaches and asked them to write work capacity sessions or whatever, it would probably look like that. So they I, I think CrossFit is probably most well known for their their definition of fitness, which is increased work capacity across broad time and modal domains. That's kind of a famous one. And then they define capacity as the ability to do real work, which is measurable using the basic terms of physics, force, distance, and time, which takes us back to what you originally briefed, which was force, distance, time. Then again, we run into the issue around how do you quantify that? I have seen very high level coaches in CrossFit do the same thing that we just talked about, which is graphing these force curves. And it's like, well, how are you, how are you capturing time for some of these movements. One thing I always think about <laughs> a bit of a shock factor here, but when I think about work capacity, I think about porn. And the reason I say that is because, uh, if you know, you, when you see it, exactly, that's exactly <laughs> where I'm going. If you go back to the 1960s, 1964 specifically, uh, justice Potter Stewart is famous for this quote, uh, effectively defining what hardcore pornography was. And he said, you, I know it when I see it. Um, and so jokingly kind of tongue in cheek, I think that that's actually a pretty, it, it certainly doesn't define work capacity, but if you were to lay out training sessions, I think most people could point out the resistance training piece. They could point out the endurance piece. They could point out the plyometric piece, and they could probably point out the work capacity piece. They may not be able to define it, but like with all hardcore porn, they'll know it when they see it. So I don't know if I actually defined anything right there or just threw in a Supreme Court reference, but in my head, when I put pen to paper and write a work capacity session, that's kind of what I have in mind is that multimodal combination of different things, putting time constraints on it, looking at different output metrics and kind of moving away from traditional strength and conditioning constraints, I guess. I think it makes sense. I would also say too, that it's worth noting just because it's really hard to like super accurately quantify real work capacity where you're measuring the force and the distance and the time doesn't mean you can't train with those principles in mind and get decent proxies for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if you assume people are like moving at roughly the same speed when they do their burpees or when they do their snatches or when they're doing their assault, like whatever. And like the height, they travel or the height, the bar moves and things like that are probably going to stay relatively the same workout to workout. So if they do more reps of those in the same amount of time, or if they accomplish all the reps in a shorter amount of time, you can get a pretty good idea that work capacity has improved and still be true to like what the definition of work is. Well, no, and I think to your point, like you look at, and maybe this is why there's not a lot of research around work capacity. I don't know, but I couldn't care less what your output is for a single burpee. Like that's irrelevant to me as a coach and coaches who think that that's relevant should maybe check themselves. But what is more important is if I give you, and, and we'll get into this with some of the multi-pace stuff, but if I give you 10 minutes of, of work and within that 10 minutes is a, an accumulation of different movements. And in this particular week you do six rounds and then the you know the next time you see that session you do seven rounds then yeah you could probably make the case that you have increased work capacity and i care a lot more about that than i do about how many watts you produced from your wall balls 
Yeah, I'm on board. Cool. So the blog article we talked about at the beginning, which we'll put in the show notes, it's on our website. It's a theoretical guide to work capacity, and and we'll kind of use that as the backbone for this. Um, we may go off script a little bit, but as a as a kind of to to lay the foundation here, I suppose. Years and years ago, when I was working with the Air Force, I recognized that this sort of third dimension of fitness was pretty important to success on the on the battlefield or in training or what have you. And it effectively was work capacity, um, really the ability to take the endurance gains, take the strength gains and combine those things together in such a way that you could do 10 minutes of work, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, just kind of grind it out. But like we mentioned, there's not really much at all out there that can put some some principles to that concept. And so you're sort of just flying blind a lot of times when you, when you sit down and try to create work capacity sessions, I will give credit to CrossFit because I think that they were sort of the first ones to think about combining, you know, a barbell and an assault bike. I know that there was probably some, you know, interval weight training is one that especially the T nation people may have heard of. Like there are other coaches out there in the past who have combined these things for sure. But I would put my money in the CrossFit basket and say that that was probably the first organization that's sort of wholesale went with it and was like high intensity normal training. Here's what it looks like, blah, 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 blah. So as a coach in that space and wanting to figure out how to put some, some really good thought and some really good principles behind building work capacity sessions, one of the organizations that I started to look pretty heavily into was OPEX. And if you're unfamiliar with OPEX, just the quick and dirty, it was founded by James Fitzgerald years and years ago. And if you know James Fitzgerald, he won the very, very, very first CrossFit Games, which I think was in like 2008, maybe. I'm kind of guessing there. Sounds about right. I feel like that's right. Um, So he came to prominence because he won the first CrossFit Games. He's He's a very, very intellectual coach, a very, very... I would say evidence-based, dogmatic in a good way, uh, creator of training. And when I started to invest in their material and try to take away some things from what they were putting out, their work capacity model stood out to me. MAP is what they call it, which I think stands for max aerobic power. I'm probably super wrong there. That but sounds they- about right. Yeah, they effectively take it from 10 down to 1. It's these various time domains. Um, by virtue of where I was located out in Tucson. Yeah, maximal aerobic power. You're maximal right. aerobic power. Yeah, so so OPEX was right up the road in Phoenix. I was down the street, well, an hour and a half down the street in Tucson. So I was fortunate enough to link up with James. We spent a lot of time in front of a whiteboard coming up with uh, what I effectively put on the blog, which was the multi-pace theory. Um, and And that is kind of where I draw a lot of my work capacity concepts from so unless you've got anything we'll just start diving into it no i'll just do a, a quick shout out of a couple of things uh, one we're going to talk plenty about drew's blog post a theoretical guide to work capacity here i do want to shout out it does a pretty good job building on the blog post right before it which was three strategies for functional conditioning um, i think the two like we didn't really intentionally make it a series but the two do go together pretty well we have a really good blog. If people don't know. It's fantastic. You guys should check it out. 
Um, but I will I'll also shout out that that my introduction to OPEX was uh, through John Fennell. Shout out JFen. Hope you listen to the podcast. I don't know. Some some really interesting stuff in how OPEX certifies coaches on mixed modal stuff. Very expensive. Um, it's it's very expensive. It's really <laughs> rigorous. There's a long process you go through. But mm-hmm. uh, John was going through that when I was working with him, and it it opened my eyes a little bit to like structured approaches to things I've never seen that level of structure on. So it's some pretty neat stuff out there. Yeah, and and I think that word you just use structure is kind of key because again. I see this a lot with, with coaches and with athletes and really, you know, in the CrossFit space, but more broadly in a lot of different areas in the tactical space, which is where they'll just throw a, a wad or a Metcon on the wall and they'll call it work capacity. And as a singular entity, that's fine, but there's really nothing in place as to how do you progress that? How do you regulate pace? What are you really trying to get out of that? And that's where I think OPEX came in and they, they put a lot of meet to that conversation to say, okay, what are we really getting after here? Um, and so I think again, from a tactical standpoint, mastering work capacity is really key when it comes to training, because you can become really strong and you can become very enduring and have a great aerobic base, but the ability to combine those things and kind of work through the suck of how that feels across different time domains is if you think about it, it's it's probably as close as we can get to replicating combat. And I know people that have deployed are probably going to shoot me in the face for saying that, but if you needed to get as close as you could to replicating the chaos of combat in a gym, it's probably through this work capacity lens. At least that's what I would, what I would say. And I think it's no surprise because of that, that CrossFit caught on in a really big way among military special operations communities and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I will also shamelessly plug right now because you started saying strong and enduring and stuff. The The overall structure of the long and strong program oh, yeah. <laughs> is basically what Drew just described. There's yes. there's stuff dedicated to being enduring. There's stuff dedicated to being strong. And then a lot of the workouts end with a block of work capacity, work capacity. kind of stuff. And we've gotten some pretty good feedback on those sessions and watched people progress over a few weeks now. So it's pretty cool to see the methodology in action. It has been interesting because some of the feedback people have posted to the community is like they're seeing some of those, the things we talked about, that increase in work capacity because when we revisit sessions and they notice that they get more rounds or they do things faster, you know, you can objectively say like we've increased. Some of them dramatically faster. Dramatically faster, which you could chalk that up to just movement familiarization or fitness. Who knows? There you go. Uh, I will, I will ask you a question before we continue into the meat of this. Please. Um, and I was I was thinking about it right before we recorded the episode, and partly I was thinking about it because of one of Alec Blennis's recent posts, where he kind of challenged whether the idea of muscular endurance as a separate thing really exists, or is muscular endurance just the outcome of a combination of conditioning and strength? Like, could, if you just got stronger and had more aerobic capacity. Like, is there any reason to train muscular endurance on its own? And I'll be honest, the post has a lot of words in it. And I was <laughs> not prepared to drive, to dive that deep into some of the literature to like really form my own opinion on the topic. So I don't really know where I stand on that one. Um, and he did like kind of ask people to like provide input if they're more of an expert on the subject and stuff. And I'm not. So I stayed out of that conversation, to be honest, but it's a really interesting Whether muscular endurance is a, conversation. is a thing. Yeah, whether it exists on its own. And I think it, it brings me back to the question I was going to ask you, because ultimately, 
like all fitness activities are a giant spectrum, right? There's no magic yes. line where you so switch from say. strength to muscular endurance to hypertrophy to aerobic to anaerobic to any of that. Like all of those are just kind of like mm-hmm. those are lines we put on the spectrum to help coaches design stuff at the end of the day. They're not like separate things that happen on their own. Um, but I guess my question is like if we had to lay it out on that spectrum, is there a spectrum that goes from like aerobic capacity to more of what you might call anaerobic capacity into work capacity into muscular endurance into strength into power into speed like is that is that a thing Um, or am i just like trying to throw shit at the wall right now i mean i think we're and no offense to alec i haven't haven't seen the post but i feel like it's kind of it's great for conversation i feel like it's splitting hairs a little bit because i think when most people think of muscle endurance in the traditional sense it's sort of that 15 to 20 rep range which you know you could also make the case that that's hypertrophy blah 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 blah. it it conveniently happens to end right about where your theoretical guide to work capacity starts yeah that's why i thought it was interesting i don't know i mean for me it's like the 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 whole point is like what stimulus are you trying to get after like what is strength we talked about this with the data-driven strength guys like Strength could be a five rep max. It could also be a one rep max. It could also be a 10 rep max. Like it just depends on what you're trying to train for. So for a power lifter who specializes in one rep maxes, like three reps would probably be considered muscle endurance for that person. So I, I think it's less about the abstract category and more about exposing the athlete to whatever stimulus it is you're trying to develop. So call it work capacity, call it muscle endurance, call it strength, call it whatever you want to call it. For me, it's like, and and we'll get into this with the multi-pace stuff. If I want my athlete to be very comfortable and very efficient in a kind of 10 to 15 minute window of output, we're going to spend a lot of time there. Is that work capacity? Is that muscle endurance? Is that strength? It doesn't really matter. It's just, I'm going to develop his or her tolerance for output across that time domain. And I don't know if that answered the question at all. Right now, I would probably just opened up a can of worms that we didn't need to go into. Well, I'm just, I was thinking, like, I don't, I don't know if I see what he's getting at. I would agree with what you said in the sense that, like, it is a spectrum, and for the sake of human beings loving patterns and graphs and charts, like, fine, we can slap it on a spectrum and say, you know, over on this, the right side is is muscle endurance. So yeah, that's fine. You want a chance to lay out multi-pace theory? Sure. So. um I will, I will caveat all of this by saying that this is, this is just my concept. Um, this is not the way it's a way. Uh, and for folks who are out there trying to come up with their own stuff or coaching other people and want to try and put a little bit of, um, some rules and regulations behind what they're doing, then feel free to use this. Um, feel free to shoot holes in it. Totally fine. We love a debate, but the, the background for this concept was, how there's a couple of things one was like how do you define like we mentioned how do you define and put principles behind metcons and wads and work capacity and then from a progression standpoint and and developing an athlete over time how do you map that onto the average tactical athlete schedule which is very chaotic very unpredictable you can't do, we talked about this before, but like you can't do the whole linear thing where we go from 
from a work capacity standpoint, we go from four minutes to six minutes to eight minutes to 10 minutes and blah, blah, blah. Because if they miss some of those, then they don't develop that level of competence in that time domain. So there's a couple of things going on here that feed into the background. But multi-pace theory, as I explained it in this blog post, I, I break it down into eight categories. So essentially eight down to one, and you can think of those as, as time domains. So multi-pace eight or MP8, whatever you want to call it, uh, that's the longest one. So I, I put it as 60 minutes, but it can go way longer. And there's guys that I've programmed Metcons for that have gone for an hour and a half um, just for funsies because they wanted to do something crazy. So to me, the top end of this is a little bit open-ended. And then you just work down incrementally. So multi-pace seven is half an hour. Six is 20 minutes. Five is 10 minutes. Multi-pace four is five minutes. Multi-pace three is three minutes. Multi-pace two is two minutes. And multi-pace one is a minute. Again, big asterisk here. You don't have to stick to, say, for example, multi-pace five. It does not have to be just 10 minutes. It could be 11 minutes. It could be nine minutes. It could be 12 minutes. It's again, these are just put in place to give you some sense of structure. And then as you become competent with it, you can start to mix and match and get creative, which is something we'll get into is like how you can tweak these things to make sense for your population or for yourself. I'll also highlight before Drew continues that if it's hard to keep up with the numbers of this stuff, definitely pull up the blog post while mm -hmm. you're listening. It's a lot easier to look at yes. in graphic. Yes, because one thing I didn't mention is that each one of those um, steps has an accompanying rest interval that will kind of make it more, I'll use, you know, capital A aerobic or capital A anaerobic. Um, it will, it will make it more one or the other based on your rest. And then the third column that you'll see on there, which I called pieces is just how many, how many repetitions or intervals you would do in a vanilla I'm just going to copy and paste, multi-paste one, 10 pieces, like just a totally vanilla thing. And again, you can get creative with those if you want. This is just to provide a framework. So I think that, I think that covers kind of the overview, unless I missed anything. Yeah. Are you about to dive into like each of them mm -hmm. individually? And just kind of movement selections. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, you're probably about to say this, but I want to make sure it doesn't get missed because it's a good point and it applies to like the first few I think you're about to talk about, but like avoiding a lot of eccentric movement kind of yeah. work mm -hmm. if you are doing the longer work interval paces. Yeah. And I think that's a good, I mean, that's a good point and it's a good transition because one of the things that's really, really important here is movement selection. So you'll see this if you dive into the OPEX material, you'll see this if you dive into the multi-pay stuff, just because you put 10 minutes on the clock and you have a five minute rest interval does not mean any movement makes sense there. Like you wouldn't, I wouldn't have an athlete back squat as a movement within kind of a work capacity thing. So I don't, I don't feel like I need to spend a ton of time explaining that, but hopefully as we flesh out each one of these steps, we kind of feed into that question, which ultimately is like, what movements make sense for these different things? What are we trying to get out of this from a work capacity standpoint? So the longest one, like we mentioned, multi-pace eight, typically these are cyclical movements. So biking, rucking, rowing, swimming, when I originally wrote this article, I was kind of flirting with the aerobic based stuff. I would still say that that probably falls into this category. However, I would also argue that there needs to be a separate percentage of training dedicated just to 
zone two, you know, running whatever modality you're going after. I wouldn't consider that work capacity, even though it might meet the quote unquote definition of multi-pace eight, if that makes sense. But really what you're going after there is just steady state stuff that the athlete can continuously put out over a long period of time, 60 minutes or longer. If you're on a bike or a rower and you're, you're working off of a particular pace, it would be a pace that you can sustain for that duration. And, and really you'll see this in some places, they'll say you should be able to sustain it for like four times longer than that. So even though you're only working for an hour, it should be a pace that you feel like you could sustain for four hours, um, just kind of as a rule of thumb. So multi-pace eight, the only real takeaway there is like long, slow, steady, feels aerobic, feels zone two, feels like active recovery, whatever. That's multi-pace eight. Seven down to one is where we get into kind of some of the more Metconi type stuff. And I mentioned that multi-pace seven, I have it as a half hour interval. Obviously that's pretty long. And that's why I would, I, I even categorize this as long work capacity intervals. Um, in a, in a previous life, if you've read any of my stuff on like uphill athlete or, or any of the stuff out there on the internet, I called this gym stamina, um, cause I thought that sounded pretty sexy, but it's, it's multimodal circuits that are designed to kind of grind it out. Like you, you set the clock for half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever it's going to be. And you just kind of grind it out. And when you're done, you feel like you got a good workout in, but you're not on the floor. So from a movement selection standpoint, you can combine some of those singular modality movements like biking, rowing, swimming, well, maybe not swimming, but biking, rowing, skiing. You can combine those with uh, gym-based exercises, sled pushes, farmer's carries, pull-ups, um, you know, kettlebell stuff, whatever. I'm just kind of making these up as I go. But the idea there is when we transition into this, this half hour interval and then get get shorter and shorter and shorter, we can start to introduce more implements. And then what you'll see as we get down to like three, two, and one, we start taking those implements away. So again, that's multi-pace seven. If this is confusing, I would encourage folks to follow along. Much on easier the on the blog. <laughs> <laughs> um, so multi-pace six, again, this is the 20 minute interval. So we've gone now from 30 minutes to 20, 20 minutes. I will, I will again, pause and just reaffirm what I said at the beginning that these are, are kind of just, we're just throwing things on the wall here. It could be 25 minutes. It could be 15. doesn't really matter. He, he does occasionally program things that are in like 90 second intervals yes. and like you're allowed to go between these. <laughs> yeah. You're allowed to go between them, but the principles to me at least still remain the same. So the only real difference between six and seven is that the pace of a quote unquote multi-pace six should be subjectively faster than seven. And that should fundamentally make sense because seven being longer, you would think that the power output for a shorter time domain is going to be higher. So you can use the same movements. It could be um, an assault bike and a farmer's carry and a sled push. You would just think that the athlete would go faster because they're working for less time. The other thing that I will mention that I kind of skipped over with multi-pace eight is that with a 60 minute piece, like what we talked about at the beginning, you only really need to do one of those. You only really need to go for an hour. Like you don't need to rest for five minutes and then repeat that. Whereas with these other ones, seven, six, five, four down to one, then you can start having conversations around 
repeating that block. And we'll get into that here in a little bit, but just this idea of capturing output for that first piece, resting for a particular period of time, and then comparing output on that second exposure to determine if the athlete was sustainable or unsustainable. And we can talk about what that means in a little bit. Put a put a bookmark on that one because I'll forget. Um, multi-pace five <clears throat> is for me kind of the um the sweet spot. That's where and if you've been doing long and strong now for a little bit, you'll probably be most familiar with that one. That's where I think most people spend most of their time is that sort of 10 to 12 minute domain. It's appropriate for finishers. Um, it's appropriate for its own work capacity session when you start to repeat it and do multiple pieces. But my argument there for years and years has been that that is the sweet spot for, for combat. Um, most of the anecdotes you'll hear from folks that have been in these situations is that that's about how long it tends to last. Obviously there are exceptions to that rule, but you also see this in CrossFit, at least traditionally in CrossFit, that kind of 10 to 12 minute time domain is is where people make their money because I would argue it bridges the gap between being really like grindy and long and being short and hard. That's like doing a mile run. Like that's a hard thing to do if you go all out or two mile if you're an ACFT person. So this is also where I would say that coaches need to start being careful about what movements they're prescribing. So when we have I was hoping you were going, yeah, when you have longer, um, intervals, like the 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, you can get away with some of the movement selection stuff because you, you have a lot of time when you get down to a 10 minute interval, you have to think, okay, intensity needs to stay high. So I need to start thinking about movements that have higher turnover. So like an assault bike has really high turnover because you're, you're pushing hard, everything's moving. You can generate a lot of output versus a, you know, I'll use a back squat again as an example. Like I do a rep and then I have to think about racking, unracking. There's a lot of, there's a lot of time in there where nothing's happening. So you have to be careful about the movements that you're selecting. Also to your point, you want to stay away from movements that have a really high eccentric load because that's what generates a lot of soreness. That's what generates a lot of fatigue. The whole point of all of this work capacity stuff is to be sustainable. And if you're just demolishing people by doing a ton of eccentric work, for those people that don't know, eccentric work would be again, like, like a back squat versus concentric work, like a lunge or a sled push or an assault bike. Yeah. I like the ones you use as examples in the article for, for multi-pace seven, but they apply through all of these, like higher time domain mm -hmm. multi-paces. I don't know if that's the right term to use here. Multi-pace. Uh, multi right. But like sled pushes, farmer carries, isometric holds, those are all things that like, I've had a lot of success with in those mm -hmm. time domains. One of my go-to workouts, when I, I can't think of something better and just need to do a work session is um, like a salt bike and farmer's carry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Those things work really well. Cause like, if you think about it, there's no negative on a sled push, right? Right. There's well, no I think negative a good... on an isometric for people who are trying to figure out what's going on here. Well, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking of a good example of like what not to do, which would be Fran. Like Fran with a lot of thrusters and pull-ups, a thruster has a really high eccentric load. Like you're going down into a front squat. Mm -hmm. Concentrically, you're doing the whole thruster movement, but then when you bring that bar back down to your shoulders, again, that's an eccentric thing. And you do that really quickly for a lot of reps. That's why you feel super sore and beat up. And when I think even of though it's so capacity, short, yeah, even though it's so short. So when I think of work capacity, again, we're going after the sustainability piece. 
So multi-phase five is where I spend most of my time with people. Um, when we get to the fours and threes and twos and ones, that's when you get into some of the faster stuff, some of the more traditional things that you might see if you came from the CrossFit space, which would be triplets or couplets. If you don't know, like a triplet has three modalities. So maybe it's sled push, kettlebell swing, assault bike. And a couplet would be like we just mentioned with Fran. There's two things, thrusters and pull-ups. Um, the example I used here, and this is one I've used quite a bit in my previous life, 500-meter row followed by as many dumbbell stepovers as possible in the remaining time. So a 500-meter row, about two minutes, um, and then you're just doing dumbbell stepovers over a box for the remaining, what is multi-pace four, for the remaining three minutes. Um, and that gives you five minutes of work. And then you would rest, you would do that again, and you would effectively just look at how many stepovers they're doing for each one of those pieces. And if that number stays constant across four or five or six intervals, pretty sustainable. If it goes down over time, they're probably working too hard at the beginning and they still need to figure out how to regulate their pace. Multi-pace three, similar to four, but again, because it's a shorter interval, we're working harder. Multi-pace two. So multi-pace two and multi-pace one to me are a little bit different because now you're getting into the two minute intervals and the one minute intervals because you don't have much time you need to be very intentional with the movements that you select. So I'll use multi-pace one as an example. That's one minute of work. If I try to cram six movements into one minute of work, there's no way the athlete is going to move fast enough to maintain the high level of output that I'm looking for. Whereas if I have them just do a 60 second assault bike, rest a minute, do it again, rest a minute, do it again. They can maintain a higher level of output. Hopefully that makes sense. There's also, um, I start worrying about like transitions between movements yeah, here exactly. too, if you're going to combine stuff, like rowers can be kind of annoying to get in and out of, mm -hmm. um, Versa climbers can be annoying to get in and out of. If you're doing barbell stuff, racking and unracking starts to become an issue. So like avoiding high friction transitions tier two. Yep. Avoiding transitions, avoiding movements that require a lot of different, you know, pieces or whatever. The other thing I'll add to this is that I mentioned with multi-pace one doing 60 second assault bike, 60 second rest, like just because that's a singular modality. And just because you could argue the assault bike is an aerobic machine, that doesn't mean that that setup is not a work capacity setup. You're still going after a specific thing, which is output over time. And you're looking at if it's calories, if it's Watts, whatever metric you want to take from that assault bike, that's what kind of makes it to me work capacity versus just, Hey, this is like an anaerobic sprint or whatever. So that is the kind of quick and dirty rundown of the eight sort of things. Again, first and foremost, if, if this is confusing or if you're curious to learn more about those eight segments, I would point you to the blog, the, the work intervals, the rest intervals, the pieces, they're intentionally meant to be nice and symmetrical and very clean. That does not mean that you always have to adhere to that. So like I mentioned, multi-pace four, five minute work interval three minute rest for four pieces. You can get crazy with that. If you want, you can do five pieces or six pieces, or you could change the rest or you could increase the work. Just be cognizant of when you do that, what you are changing as far as the stimulus is concerned, because every change you make changes the stimulus that the athlete experiences. So have we left any stones unturned 
there. No, I think there's stuff that we're about to like transition into in terms of principles for applying it, but you, you bring it up right after explaining all that in the blog. So I'm going to bring it up right after you explain it all right now on the podcast <laughs> and talk about the, the sustainable pacing kind of yes. stuff. Cause I think you, you mentioned it briefly at the beginning talking about multi-pace eight, but it's good to reinforce it here. And it speaks to kind of my own personal experience with this style of training, but if you go to most CrossFit gyms, you're going to see people kind of redline every workout mm -hmm. and, and leave themselves lying on the floor and absolutely wreck at the end of it. And I remember what an eye-opening discovery it was for me to find out you can do CrossFit style workouts at RPE seven and eight, <laughs> where you don't crush your soul in the process. Not and you. the degree to which that makes it like sustainable and recoverable, and you're able to do more of that training and it doesn't ruin your life pretty cool and that's one of the things you talk about here in the blog mm -hmm. is like applying that you should be able to sustain this for four times as long if you had to kind of mentality forces you into not trying to like blow it out of the water on the last round or two or something like that so useful to remember here that they're not all a race right and that to me is sort of the maybe the gold nugget um for a tactical athlete specifically but when we think more broadly about work capacity it's that it needs to be sustainable. So you don't, if you think about this from like a real world scenario, say it's combat and say it's the 10 minute thing that we talked about, you don't really serve your team well by redlining and then just being on the ground because you pushed as hard as you could for those 10 minutes and now you're done. Like obviously there's occasions where that might make sense because again, I'm out of my depth when I talk about these kinds of things. But from a training standpoint, what really makes work capacity good is when you're able to learn as an athlete how to sustain output over multiple multiple iterations multiple rounds multiple intervals because like you mentioned if you only as an athlete train to redline and train to end up on the floor you're not training sustainability you're training unsustainability and that is not what we're after in this setting and so the next piece of this is is kind of pacing instructions but i'll i'll keep it relatively broad from the standpoint of the eight different intervals that we just talked about. And I'll use, you know, I'll use multi-pace three as an example here. So three minutes of work, two minutes of rest for six rounds. So come up with whatever circuit you want for those three minutes. Let's just call it, what was the one I used earlier? Like a sled push and a salt bike and some kettlebell swings. So Let's say that the sled push, we're, we're doing a 10-yard sled push, and that counts as a rep. The assault bike, we're tracking calories, and the kettlebell swings, we're doing reps. So as an athlete or as a coach, what I'm tracking for that three-minute work interval is the total number of reps that they completed. And I'm going to completely make up a number here, but let's just say they complete 20 reps in three minutes, and then they rest for two minutes, and they do it again. And then they rest for two minutes and they do it again. They rest, they do it again, blah, 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 blah. Let's say they do it for six rounds. Okay, great. They've done their work capacity session. If that second round, so the first round they did 20. If the second round they did 19 and then the third round they did 15 and then the fourth round they did 10 reps, fifth round they did nine and then they did nine. That's unsustainable work. So all that told me is that the athlete crushed themselves at the beginning and then hung on as best they could and completed piss poor reps till they got to the very end and only completed nine reps in three minutes. 
I think a lot of listeners who've experienced CrossFit style training have probably had that experience personally, at least a few times. Right. So, and I, I will, I will always say like the, the, it depends answer matters here because there are occasions where you want to do that. Like if I'm testing you on something, I want you to give it everything that you have, but that's very, very rarely am I actually testing you for something in training more often than not, I want you to be sustainable. So revisiting that same thing, three minutes on two minutes off for six rounds. If instead the athlete does 17 reps, 16 reps, 17 reps, 17 reps, 16 reps, 17 reps, that's sustainable work. So if we only looked at that first interval, sure. The, the first guy did 20, the second guy did 17. Oh, the first guy's fitter. When we look at the last interval, the first guy did nine reps. The second guy did 17 reps because they were able to sustain that amount of work. That to me is key. And one of the, I think one of the really important pieces of this multi-pace concept is regardless of what tier you look at one through, through seven, because multi-pace eight doesn't really adhere to this, but one through seven, we're looking to sustain output. So pace becomes important. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. How do you quantify this? You could get into the physics books and you could look at force times distance over time. And that's great. Or you could create proxies, which in this case are reps or time, whatever metric you're looking at, and then compare one round to the next and see if the athlete is able to be sustainable. And this is something that folks that are doing long and strong will have seen because when we repeat stuff after a couple of weeks, they can look at their output from week one, say, and compare it to week two. And if in week one, they were that guy that did 20, 19, 15, 10, 9, 9. And then in week three, they were the guy that did 17, 16, 17, 17, 16, 17. Like, they have improved their work capacity. So it's a way of creating proxies that signal to you as the coach, hey, this training is going in the right direction. I can dig it. I'm trying to think what we need to go through other than that. There's some example stuff in the blog that are useful for people in terms of like laying out different weeks and approaches and stuff like that. I think that's kind of useful, but probably painful to try and talk through <laughs> in audio format. Yes. Um, so I would, I would ask you to briefly go through accumulation versus intensification. This was something, again, I wrote this originally several years back, just for my own, I guess, shits and giggles, but accumulation phases and intensification phases of work capacity. If we're thinking about this from like a macro planning standpoint, the accumulation phase, the intent is to develop, and I'm reading this directly from the blog post. The intent is to develop the athlete's capacity at each pace through the addition of more volume. So the easiest way to do that is to obviously add more rounds. So if we're looking back at that multi-pace four example, maybe week one, we do four rounds of, of three minutes and week you know, two, we do five rounds, like a pretty linear accumulation of volume across time. The, the big asterisk here is that you would only add rounds if the athlete is able to maintain pace. So if we look back at that guy who did 20, 19, 15, 10, nine, nine, I wouldn't add rounds to that. In fact, I wouldn't change that prescription at all. I would let him keep doing that until he understands how to regulate pace, understands how to move efficiently from one movement to the next and kind of strategizes the session so that he gets to that sustainability point. And then once he's sustainable, we can look at accumulating volume by adding more rounds. So there's really three here. There's regulation and then accumulation and then intensification. That's a good point. Yeah. You could probably make that case. Yep. Regulation. Yeah, sure. 
we'll have to rewrite the whole blog post now. There you go. Um, the intensification component of this is where we increase the intensity of each pace. And again, I'm reading this to force the athlete to adapt to a faster effort, more work or less rest. So once they have shown again, that sustainability piece, once they've shown mastery of this particular prescription, you can reduce rest. And that's a really easy way of increasing intensity. You can change your exercises. You can add weight. Uh, you can create things that have more turnover. So you can introduce an assault bike, whereas before you had a rower, as an example, we're just creating intensity. We're adding intensity to that work capacity piece. And we're being very deliberate because again, the goal is to take what was sustainable at say five minutes, keep five minutes fixed, but increase the intensity. So they're able to cope with more intensity across that five minute time domain. That is the kind of accumulation versus intensification. And from a programming standpoint, again, getting into kind of the macro stuff and looking over time, I would argue that when you have time and, you know, no deployments coming up or no training or whatever, you can spend a lot of time in the accumulation phase. And then when you know you need to spike for something or get really tuned up for something, you can start to play with intensity. And that kind of follows the same principles that I think anybody would follow for traditional strength and conditioning. One thing that I would add to this that I, I talk about in the blog, but I'll touch on here is task versus time prescriptions. And this gets a little bit into the weeds, but I think it's important. We'll take kind of two different sessions, a task-based session versus a time-based session. So you can think of a task-based work capacity session as how many reps are they doing? So an AMRAP, for an example, that to me is an easier entry point for most athletes because you say, Hey, you've got 10 minutes of work, do as many reps as you can. You've got 15 minutes of work, do as many reps as you can, whatever. The, the prescription is based on task. Hopefully that makes sense. I think so. I'm trying to think what other stuff there is to break down here. You, you do have a section in the blog on cyclical versus multimodal pacing. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk that? Cause it might be a little well, I mean, so in the blog, but the, so I, I talked about task. So that the other side of that coin would be time. So when we think about progressing an athlete over time, and this is again, something long and strong folks will see once an athlete becomes very competent with a particular prescription, and again, a particular time domain, so 10 minutes, then you can switch to a time-based prescription. This is a little bit confusing, and it was confusing to me when I first started. When we get into time-based prescriptions, what we're actually looking at is reps. So if I give you an open-ended session, say 21-15-9 of, we'll use Fran, thrusters and pull-ups. Let's say I gave you that, and I wanted you to repeat it four times with three minutes of rest between each one. The metric that we're measuring there is time. How long does it take you to complete 21.59? Because it's open-ended, it could take you an hour. It could take you three minutes. There's a lot more on the athlete when it comes to regulating pace and being a real master of that time domain. Because as a coach, I'm looking to see if the finishing time for those four intervals is somewhat close. So hopefully that makes sense. From a, from a task-based prescription, it's a little bit easier to because everybody finishes at the same time, it's a little bit easier to extract, Hey, how much output did you do? How many reps did you do from a time-based thing? It's a little bit more challenging because now the athlete 
really has to hone in on how fast things are going to be, what their strategy is going to look like, because the goal is to finish at roughly the same time domain for each one of those intervals. Like I said, a little bit more into the weeds there. I would point folks to the blog because I explained that a little bit more. Um, and I may actually in the future just do a blog post specifically on that component. Seems reasonable to me. I think, frankly, at this point, we've pretty much laid it all out, right? I think so. I think, again, the key takeaway here, well, a couple of things. Number one, this is just a way. It's not the way. Mm -hmm. Um, there are many people that came before me that I stole a lot of things from that fed into this, but what I'm getting at or what I'm trying to get at is let's take that third leg of the stool, that work capacity piece, and let's try and put a little bit more thought behind it, much in the same way we do with our, our aerobic work and our strength work. So instead of just slapping a finisher on the wall and having your athletes redline because the class ends at 60 minutes. We're a little bit more deliberate with it. We have some principles in place. We can teach an athlete what we're getting at, and we we go for sustainability, which, as we mentioned a couple of times, is, I think, kind of the key component of this is that it's sustainable. I'll armyize it just a little bit because I think it's relevant <laughs> here. But those of you who know, by army doctrine, you are not required to follow it but you should be able to explain why you're doing it differently than the doctrine says when you do it differently, right? There's fundamentals you should know, and then you can make your decisions based on the situation. And the reason I like this model is because it gives you, it gives you some fundamentals for a type of training that I think you could obviously stray away from this model and be totally fine. But I think people come into work capacity style training with no model and mm -hmm. no fundamentals and no way to articulate why they've made the choices they've made. I think we've basically provided like a foundational concept you can use to make decisions around some kind of structure and start to implement some kind of logical progression to it and some way of knowing that your exercises are going to like end up working out because you have some principles to base it on rather than just like a vague idea of what work capacity training is supposed to be. Absolutely. And like I, like I said, I wrote this quite a while ago. Um, I wanted to put it back up there for the kind of new Mops and Most community to see. I would love for people to ask questions. I'd love for people to pick it apart. I'd love for there to be conversation about it. If there's components of this that people want more fleshed out, we can do that too. Um, but like you just mentioned, the goal is to put a framework in place that hopefully folks can can kind of take and run with. Yeah, and we've uh, we've got a few people experiencing it live through the Wong and Strong stuff. So always open to feedback from those folks in terms of is this is understanding the theory helpful to knowing why you're doing the training and is the training producing the results you're looking for and if you want to sign up visit our website mopsandmos.com hey alex let's cover our ass real quick oh great idea drew all right guys the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter N, mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes, our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can 
at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and we receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in depth in kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.